Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. So listen, a bunch of years ago, my, my wife's grandparents, they were into this thing that they called heritage gifts, which meant that they were cleaning out their attic. And they gave it to us for Christmas, and it was a good time. And one year for Christmas, they gave us this old clock, and it was in a box with some other stuff, and the clock didn't really work that great uh, or at all. And so, you know, we don't really have need for a broken clock, so we just kept it in the box for a bunch of years. And then finally, uh, a few years ago, as a birthday present, I thought it'd be kind of fun to fix this clock up for my wife. So I, I went to the mall to the, there's a clock guy in the mall. I don't know if you know that or not, but he's there. And you would have thought when I, I handed my clock over to this guy and put it on the counter, you would have thought I was reuniting two old friends that hadn't seen each other in decades. Like he, he gushed over my clock and he said, oh, this thing's over 100 years old. It was made right here in Bristol, Connecticut. It's the Bristol Clock Company. And it's, I've never seen such a, fine example of a mantle clock. It's in such great shape, and yada, 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 yada. He gushed. It was embarrassing the way the guy was talking about my clock. And so after a little while, I was like, um, you know, the question on my mind is, so how much is that worth? <laughs> and, uh, and he told me, well, if we get it running, it's worth about $1,500. So I said, not bad for something I was going to throw out. So he got it running. And you know where that clock is today? It sits proudly on our mantle. It's displayed in our family room. And every Monday, I have this little kind of tradition. I go and I carefully wind it for another week, get it going for another seven days. It sits there, and it keeps great time, which... I hope I can say the same for myself when I'm over 100 years old. So, right, it's amazing what this, how this clock works. I started with this story today because as we begin our study of Hebrews, you might wonder why. Why are we even looking at this book? And here's why. When you know the value of what you have, you're less likely to throw it away. When you know the value of what you have, you're less likely to throw it away. You're also less likely to try to improve it. Like that clock is no longer at risk for being thrown away. And it's no longer at risk for being torn apart and used as an art project or something silly like that. It, it is now what it was meant to be. It's a cherished family heirloom. And we have no need to improve on it because it's just excellent the way that it is. And this is the purpose of the book of Hebrews. Do you know what you have in Jesus Christ? Do you know the value of it? Do you appreciate it? See, by the time we come to the middle of August and we finish this whole series, I trust that you will cherish the gift that you have in Jesus more supremely than anything else you have in your life. Your relationship, your friendship with Jesus is unparalleled. It's a priceless treasure, and you don't want to throw it away. You can't improve on it. 
Jesus is perfect just the way he is. Now, you know, we live in a culture where syncretism is really the popular religion of the day. Syncretism, you've got syncretism, pluralism. Pluralism says all roads lead to heaven, everything is equal, pluralism. Syncretism says, well, let me take some of this. Since it's all equal, syncretism is how we apply it. I'll take some of this, and I'd like to believe some of that, and I really don't like that part, so I'm going to dismiss that. But I like this, so it's a little slice of Christianity, a little slice of Buddhism, a little slice of Eastern mysticism, and I make up basically my own religion. Many of you are syncretists. Because while you believe in Jesus, you're more than willing to believe that a person can believe anything else they want to believe, and it's just fine. It's okay for them, too. If pressed, you would probably confess that everybody goes to heaven. I mean, there might be a couple of really bad people that don't go, like Hitler. He'll probably not. But basically, everybody's going to go because everybody's basically good. That's syncretism, and that's not a biblical answer. My prayer is that by the time we finish the book of Hebrews, that you will see that Jesus is so far superior to anything and everything else that it's all trash in comparison. That's, that's the goal. That's the thrust of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews. So here's our memory verse for the summer. We've been doing this. This is right out of Hebrews chapter 10. I'm hoping by the time we say this every single week for the whole summer that you'll have it down. But it says this. So would you read it out loud with me to drive it in a little bit? So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Hebrews 10, 35, and 36. It's the central verse for the whole book of Hebrews. Do not throw away your confidence. Now, this is not like confidence like, hey, I'm confident. This is confidence. It's another word for faith. It's the Hebrews word for faith. It's like confidence in Christ. Like, ooh, he is everything. I'm hanging on. I'm confident in what he said, who he is, and in what he has promised me. I'm 100% confident. And so he says, don't throw that away because it will be richly rewarded. So what keeps me from throwing away my confidence? I've got to know how valuable it is. And that's the book of Hebrews. So let's dig in. This morning's an intro. We're going to cover chapter one, and uh, we'll go into it. Now, first thing we got to notice is this. Although we call it a book, it's not really a book. It, it's, a, it's one of the 66 books that makes up our Bible, our Holy Bible. You know, it's 66 different books written over a span of a couple thousand years, three different languages, that sort of thing. But it's technically not a book. And a lot of people call it a letter, but it's really not a letter either. Because if, you, if you're in Hebrews chapter 1, if you flip over just a page, you'll go to the letter of Philemon. This is a letter. This is a classic first century 
letter. Look how Philemon begins, just one page in front of Hebrews. It says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a letter. That's how a first century letter starts. You know clearly who wrote it, to whom it was written. They start with the whole grace and peace to you. That's very common in the first century. So see, that's a letter. The book of Hebrews doesn't contain any of that. Um, In fact, if you look at verse 1, look how it starts. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That's, we don't know who wrote it. We don't know to whom it was written. So what is this? We get a little clue if you go to the end of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 22, and you see this. He says, brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact, I've written to you quite briefly. See that word exhortation? That word exhortation is used one other time in the, in the whole Bible, in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 15. And in that context, it's used in the way that it was used in the first century. It's a word that was used to talk about a sermon that was delivered in the synagogue on Sabbath. And so you have a synagogue sermon. So what do we have in Hebrews? I believe we have a sermon. You don't have a book. You don't have a letter. You have a sermon. And even if you read it, it's about 40 minutes long. If you start at the beginning and you read through the whole thing just out loud, it takes about 40 minutes. Typical sermon length. So it's safe to conclude that's what it is. Who preached it? We don't know. A lot of people think the Apostle Paul did, but it doesn't bear any of his common idiosyncrasies. The Apostle Paul, you know, as brilliant as Paul was, he was not known for his grammatical excellence. He was kind of known for run-on sentences, like that's one of his famous uh, trademarks, and this, and this, and this, and this. Like the whole letter to the Ephesians is only a couple of sentences. you got six whole chapters. You know, Paul just goes on and on, like, take a breath, buddy. He just keeps going. That's Paul. None of that's in Hebrews. Hebrews is written in Greek. You know, it's Greek, and it's actually quite sophisticated Greek. And so we don't think it was him. Could have been Barnabas who traveled with Paul. It could have been a guy named Apollos. Apollos was a famous, uh, well-known preacher in the first century. People called him the silver tongue because of his oratory prowess. So maybe Hebrews comes from Apollos. Maybe it comes from Priscilla. I kind of like to think about Priscilla sometimes in that way. Priscilla and her husband Aquila were leaders in the early church and very well known um, in both Rome and Corinth. And in fact, in Acts uh, chapter 18, you can look it up there. Um, Acts chapter 18, you have an, an example of Priscilla and Aquila taking Apollos under their wing to teach him about Jesus because while Apollos was a fantastic preacher, his doctrine was a little off. So Priscilla and Aquila trained Apollos about Jesus. So maybe 
If Priscilla was the one that trained Apollos, maybe she's the one that delivered the message. I guess the bottom line is this. We don't know. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. And maybe that's a good thing. Because instead of emphasizing the human author, we get to emphasize instead the divine. And God is speaking. He is speaking. Look at verse 1 again in Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. God is speaking. He's always been speaking. And now he's speaking to us through his son, through Jesus Christ. The question is, are we listening? This is a question I'd like for us to consider today. Are we listening? How well are we listening to Jesus? Because he's speaking. Are we listening to him? It's a question that the pastor of Hebrews, I like to call the, whoever wrote Hebrews, I like to call him the pastor. He's given us this message, you know, so you might hear me refer to the pastor. So it's a question that the pastor of Hebrews is really trying to drill into his audience. Are you listening? Jesus is speaking. Are you listening to him speak? So who was the audience of Hebrews? Who were the first ones who heard this sermon and received it? Well, we don't really know who that is either, perfectly, to be honest. But you got a pretty good hint. Like your Bible says the letter, some Bibles say the letter to the Hebrews. That's not a bad name. I mean, after all, pretty good indicators that they were Jewish. Um, you've got, for one thing, the book of Hebrews is like loaded with Old Testament quotes. I mean, just through and through the whole thing. And he doesn't give any, ex any context. He just throws it out there. Like you're supposed to know what he's talking about. It's kind of, reading Hebrews is a little bit like listening to two computer geeks talk. You ever been in those conversations and your eyes glaze over because you're not a computer geek, but they're throwing out the, hey, have you seen the new P90X 4095? And they're throwing out all these numbers and letters and, oh, it's screaming, man, and you're just completely glazed over. That's right. They know what they're talking about, but you don't know what they're talking about. That's Hebrews. They knew it because they were steeped in these Old Testament scriptures. So all the speaker has to do is just throw out a quote, and his audience automatically could fit it right in. You and I are not exactly Old Testament experts, and we're not exactly, definitely not, experts in Jewish ceremonial laws. So we need a little bit of explanation. And that's why, partly why in the soap journal, if you're, you got one, You'll notice we have both Old Testament reading and New Testament and the Hebrews. And that's because what I'm trying to do in that is I'm hoping that as you read, the he read Hebrews and then the next day you flip over and you'll read the, uh, you know, the Psalm or the Old Testament reference, I'm hoping you'll say, oh, I, I remember that phrase. Yeah, he used that in Hebrews. 
That's my aim in that. So we've got to try to we've got to try to bring the two together, and that's partly why I love the book of Hebrews because you, in order to read it, you also have to get into your Old Testament. So it's like a great bridge book between the Old and the New Testaments. So you know that's that's us. So what else do we know about this pastor's audience? So we know they're Jewish because they knew these scriptures. But what else about them? Well, a little clue is found in chapter 2, verse 3. Look at chapter 2, 3. He says, How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Look at what we underlined there. It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. See that? So in other words, the pastor of Hebrews and the first audience of Hebrews, they were like second-generation Christians. They, they did not hear Jesus directly. And they may not have even heard the first apostles directly. They heard it from those who heard them. Do you see that? And so we got second-generation Christians, and, and this is important. This is really important. Um, let me do a little quick rabbit trail. The book of Judges, in my opinion, is probably the ugliest book in the whole Bible. I mean, you read that book, you go, man, what were they thinking? I mean, there's some crazy stuff going on in the book of Judges. And part of the reason why is the book of Judges ends with this epitaph. Judges 21, 25, it says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And that's what you see in the book of Judges. Everybody's just doing whatever. And you go, it is gross. So if you ever want a really disturbing day, read the book of Judges. You'll love it. So what happened? Well, the people of Israel, were in, they were in constant turmoil. They're in constant deep moral decline. It's bad news. What led to all of that? Judges begins by telling us this in Judges chapter 2. It says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. You see what's happened there in Judges? You have Joshua, Caleb, Moses, those guys and their whole generation, they remember what Egypt was like. They experienced the ten plagues. They, they went through the Red Sea on dry land. They ate manna every day out in the desert for 40 years. But then that whole generation died. And then you get their kids that grow up. Now their kids don't remember Egypt. All Egypt was was stories that my mom and dad talked about. And those kids, Judges says knew neither the Lord, they didn't know what he had done for Israel, and look what they did. That generation did evil in the eyes of the Lord. See, living, as, living in the second generation is actually a danger point in your faith. Those living as second generation followers of Christ are more likely to abandon their faith in Jesus because they don't share the same experience of deliverance that their parents had. 
Does it make sense? Like, it's, it's easier, you're more committed. Let's see, how do I word that? Let me read this. See, the, my commitment to a story is not nearly as strong as my commitment to something I've personally experienced. This is why, I think, for those of us living in the second generation, or you parents with your kids, it's so essential that your kids have a personal encounter with Jesus. We've got to somehow help them set them up to experience and encounter Jesus because they don't know the same Egypt you know, that you know. They don't know that same story. See? And this is what the pastor of Hebrews is trying to do. He, he's preaching his heart out. He's hoping that his audience is going to have an encounter with Jesus. Even though they're second generation, even though all they heard was stories, they didn't meet Jesus face to face, but the pastor of Hebrews is trying his best to get these, his audience to encounter Christ. He's trying to bring them into this encounter so that they see Jesus as, a, as the living Lord that he is, and they never let go of him again. Because, because they were tempted to let it slide. Because times were getting tough. Persecution was starting to ramp up around the Roman Empire. See, their parents, their parents were more than willing to die for Jesus. Why? Well, they, they, they witnessed them. But this generation, maybe we should tone it down a little so that we don't get so many hits, see? I think Jesus is great, but everybody else is fine too. Don't hit me. <laughs> That's kind of the spirit, the attitude, the heart that was happening there. Let me show you some examples. You can see it in the Hebrews. It's kind of scattered throughout the book. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. He says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this promise of entering his rest, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Don't fall short. Hebrews 4.14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we profess. Don't, don't let it go. Be firm in your hold. Um, verses, chapter 5, verse 11 gets more challenging. He says, we have much more to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, we do not want you to become lazy, but we want you to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what's been promised. Don't get lazy. Hebrews 12, verse 12, chapter 12, 12, he urges them, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. He ends Hebrews chapter 12, 25, near the end. He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If Israel did not escape when they refused Moses, who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from Jesus, who warns us from heaven? You see what they're facing? They're slipping. They're getting lax. 
a little lazy, cooling off, drifting, compromising. Their parents, many of their parents saw Jesus with their own eyes, and they were, many of them probably died for it. But these second-generation Christians, they don't share the same fire that their parents had. And time's getting tough. You're tempted to slide into neutral, go under the radar, and you and I are in the same danger. Let's face it. It's becoming less and less popular to follow Christ these days. <clears throat> and if you're serious about following Jesus, if you're serious about obeying Jesus, you're going to take crap for it. Where you work and where you go to school is becoming increasingly hostile towards your faith in Christ. You're finding yourself caught in tension, caught in conflict that you never prepared for. Some of you have teachers in school that are, are sending you constant messages um, to conform to their garbage or face the consequences. The HR department at your work is, sends email after email bombarding you with messages to conform to their policies that endorse sin and give approval to the latest divis divisive false teachings. And the not-so-subtle message is that you'd better conform or you will get canceled. So what do you do? Our natural tendency is to keep our heads down and avoid getting shot. There's a lot of wisdom in that. A lot of wisdom in that. But I want to ask a deeper question. What's it doing to your soul? Like, if you, live out, if you live your faith out loud, you'll be hated. But if you compromise, you'll end up hating yourself. So we're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place, are we not? Like, I'm either hated for what I believe, or I hate myself for compromising what I believe. It sounds like a lose-lose, doesn't it? What do I do? I was thinking about this recently and reflecting through Hebrews, and I wrote this in my journal. Just share my journal entry with you, okay? I am an oddball. <clears throat> I do not fit in. I hope in something I cannot grasp. I love someone I've never seen. I follow a tradition that has a long history of getting people killed. I'm commanded to lay down my life for those who hate me, to be patient with those who despise me, to serve those who malign me. Why would any sane person choose this? On the surface, we look stupid. To the casual observer, we appear as fools. Yet, God has promised a rest, and I make every effort to enter it. God promises not to forget my good work. My confidence will be richly rewarded. 
So I'm looking for the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God himself. And I'm not alone. I am surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before and cheer me on. I'm receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. My God is a consuming fire and I am consumed by him. So I gladly bear disgrace with Christ for here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. And so I offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. See, the book of Hebrews, the book of, that's the whole book of Hebrews, kind of summed up. The book of Hebrews is very relevant for you and me. The pastor comes alongside of us with an encouragement and a challenge, and he's like, tune your ears. Jesus is speaking. Listen. Listen to what he's saying. In chapter 1, the pastor makes a pretty good case for why Jesus is worth listening to. So let me just wrap this up real quick. We'll go right through it. Ready? I want to read, though, Hebrews chapter 1. It's just important. So let's read it. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 5. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They'll be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not, and the obvious answer to that question is, none of them. God never said that to an angel. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received as just punishment, How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. 
God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Spirit distributed according to his will. So who, who's speaking to us? The Son. The Son is speaking. And verses 2 through 4 tells us who this Son is. Look at these real quick, eight things, two to four, eight things about who this son is. It's a pretty big deal. Look, he's the heir of all things. He's the maker of the universe. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God's very being. He's the sustainer of all things by his powerful word. He's the one who provided purification for sins. He's the one who's sitting at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He's far above and superior to angels like this is the son. He's a big deal, isn't he? Pretty big deal. But why bring up angels? That's an interesting question. It seems like that doesn't really fit. He's just made a great list of all the cool things that Jesus is. And then he does this flip and starts talking about angels. Why? Why? Remember, the original audience of Hebrews were Jewish. And in Jewish tradition, they believed that angels, this is huge, angels helped Moses to deliver the word of God. They believed that God sent the message to angels, sent the message to Moses, sent the message to the people. That's how they believed it. In fact, they took this right from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. Moses is singing a song, and it says, The Lord came from Sinai, and it dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with myriads of holy ones from the south, from his mountain slopes. So Mount Sinai, that's where Moses received the Ten Commandments. Mount Sinai is where you know, Moses received the word of God and gave it to the people. It was a big deal, Mount Sinai. And then what's Deuteronomy tell us? That God came to Moses, How? with myriads of holy ones, with angels. You go, okay, well, that's not that big a deal. Did they really believe that? They must have, because by the time you come to the, to the New Testament, they're still believing it, even the Apostle Paul. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Paul says, the law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator, Moses. So, so even the Apostle Paul you know, held to this, so it's a pretty firmly held belief that angels played a big role in delivering the word of God to Moses and to the people of Israel. And so this is why the pastor begins his sermon with this argument. Because look at if the word of God delivered through angels was awesome, imagine how much more awesome the word of God is delivered through the Son of God. That's his point. And he's speaking to this people who they upheld angels. They were, you know, really revered them for their role in bringing God's word. But he's like, you know what? They were cool, but I'm sorry. The word coming from the Son of God himself, a lot better. Wouldn't you agree? That's his point. And then verses 5 through 14, he throws out all these Old Testament quotes that you and I have no clue where they come from but his audience would have. He, he throws them all out there. He, the, verses, look at verse 5. Jesus is the Son of God. In verse 6, God commands angels to worship Jesus. In verses uh, 7 through 9, God calls the angels servants, but he calls the Son 
Um, he gives the son a lasting throne with a scepter of justice. In verses 10 through 12, Jesus outlasts the entire physical universe. He rolls it up like a garment, just rolls it up, and it's gone, and now he outlives it. In, in verse 13, Jesus sits at the right hand of God, a place that no angel would possibly dare to sit. Jesus is right there at the right hand of the throne of God. So using these quotes from the Old Testament, the pastor demonstrates Jesus' greatness using this Using this, right? Using this teaching technique that we need to understand called synchrisis. Just real quick, I'll tell you what this was. Teachers would use this in Greek classrooms back in the day, long before they had pencils and papers, ink and pen, iPads, those sorts of things. Teachers had to do things to help their classes to remember important information. Would that make sense? And one of them was synchrisis. Synchrisis was a word association game where you, here's your main point, and we're going to contrast other things to that so that you can remember that. It goes like this. If I say to you, I'll be the teacher, hey, class, what's better than ice cream? You say, nothing's better than ice cream. And you go, hey, ice cream sundaes, right? <laughs> yeah, ice cream. Is broccoli better than ice cream? Nah. Is oatmeal better than ice cream? Nah. Hey, class, what's better than ice cream? Nothing. And this is exactly what the pastor of Hebrews does with Jesus. God speaking to us through his son, Jesus. Hey, class, are angels better? Is what's better than Jesus? Nothing. Nothing. Are angels better than Jesus? No. And you go through the rest of the book of Hebrews. Is Moses better than Jesus? No. Is the Levitical priesthood better than Jesus? No, that's chapters 4 and 5. Is the temple better than Jesus? No, that's chapter 6, chapter 9 rather. So what's better than Jesus, class? Nothing. Nothing's better than Jesus. That's what he's doing. That You've just summarized the whole book of Hebrews. But this is going to give you a little quick side note. If you're the kind of person who, um, who likes to go and dig in a little bit and you're going to go do some research on the book of Hebrews, let me just give you a heads up. You're going to find some people that will tell you that Hebrews is anti-Semitic. And part of the reason why they accuse the book of Hebrews as being anti-Semitic is because of things like this. Well, look, you're dissing the priesthood. You're dissing the temple. You're dissing Moses. I mean, clearly, Hebrews has a beef with Judaism. No, no. It's synchrisis. It, go back to broccoli. Is broccoli better than ice cream? No. But is broccoli bad? No. It's just if you have a bowl of broccoli and a bowl of ice cream and all things equal, ice cream. you're going ice cream every time. And that's what he's saying. He's not, he's not saying the Levitical priesthood is bad, the temple's bad, Moses is That's not. He's not even saying angels are bad. He's just saying, compared to Jesus, right? Jesus is way better. A bowl of angels, a bowl of Jesus. You want Jesus every time. That's, that's what he's saying, see? So, so then he comes to chapter 2, and he closes his argument here with this. Chapter 2, 1 to 4. And if you do a, if you kind of try, it's probably, you see it better in your, if you got your Bible open in front of you. But if you do Hebrews 1, 2, and then merge that with Hebrews 2, 1, you get the whole argument. 
In, in chapter 1, verse 2, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And then skip all the angel part, and you come to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay more careful attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away. He's spoken to us by his son. Therefore, we must pay must the most careful attention to what we've heard so that we don't drift away. See? This brings up an important question for us. You know, we don't think that angels are that big of a deal like they did. My guess is none of you woke up this morning saying, thinking about angels talking to you. Probably that didn't happen. However, you are listening. What are you listening to? What are you listening to? Um, are you listening to culture? Are you listening to um, what? We must pay more careful attention to what we listen to. You know that Jesus is speaking. Are we listening? Are we listening to him? Are we tuned to his voice? You know, the way that you listen is a sign of honor to the one you're listening to, isn't it? You know, there's a difference between listening and hearing. Like, you can hear stuff all the time. Like, maybe at work or something, you got the radio playing all, you know, you're not really, it's just noise. You're just hearing it. But, but, but then something will come on the radio that's important to you, and what do you do? You start listening. Isn't it interesting? So we listen to the things that are important to us. Do we not? Like, like a sports trivia person, you know, somebody that just, they can rattle off stats like that from back in the 1950s. You know, how do they, how do, they do that? Well, it's important to them. Therefore, anytime they hear a sports trivia stat, they listen. It soaks in. Somebody who knows pop culture, you know, they can tell you the Kardashians' personal schedule, right? Why? How do, they, how do they know that they just got a haircut? You know, how do they know whatever? I don't know. Because they're listening. It's important to them. And so anytime Hollywood gossip pops up, their ears are tuned right to it, and they're soaking it in, listening to it, Right? I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying, just an example. My point is we listen to what's important to us. Jesus is speaking. Are you listening? And by the way that you listen, what does it reveal about the importance of Jesus to you? That's the follow-up question. Like if you're going to, let's put it on a, 10, on a, you know, a 10 scale, one being not at all, 10 being perfectly, how well do you listen for Jesus? How intently do you listen for him, for his voice as he speaks? And what does your answer reveal about the value that you place on him, on Jesus? Because we listen to what we value. Are you listening? And as we 
As I said, as we go through Hebrews this summer and worship, you can come up, John. As we go through Hebrews this summer, my prayer is that by the time we get to middle of August and we get through Hebrews, that we will discover the supremacy of Jesus and that our ears will just be in, just tuned to his voice, that as he speaks, we listen, that we're just attuned to him because we value him that highly, that highly. And that we will discover that he is worth so much, we'll never throw him away again. We'll never water him down again. We will keep him in that magnified, prominent spot that he deserves and rightly belongs. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.